You're listening to the Maritime Gardening Podcast, episode 97, brought to you by Vessi Seeds. Well, today, folks, I have author Keith Reed, author of the book entitled Improving Your Soil, A Practical Guide to Soil Management for the Serious Home Gardener. Who is Keith Reed? Uh, Keith Reed grew up on a farm in Bruce County, Ontario. He worked for a fertilizer and farm, farm supply a retail company. He worked for the Ontario government as a soil fertility specialist. He worked for the Canadian government as a soil scientist. And he wrote, the, he wrote this book, the book that we're going to talk about in, on this episode. It's called uh, Improving Your Soil, A Practical Guide to Soil Management for the Serious Gardener. He wrote this book to sort of bridge that gap between the, uh, the conventional uh, garden book written for the home gardener and the, the academic book written for the uh, academic student. I, I have to say, um, I spent a long time in university, uh, and one might even say I probably never finished, but um, this book remind me, to, to a certain extent, um, to a textbook. It's very fun to read, it's very interesting to read, it's very informative, it's not, it's not dry like a textbook, okay, for people listening, that's not my point. What I'm talking about is just the third, it's written like an extremely well-written textbook, the way textbooks should be written, let's put it that way, right? Very approachable, um, very, um, very understandable, very well-organized, uh, excellent uh, uh, appendix section, <laughs> right? So it, it's a very good resource for anyone that has a garden, that is uh, interested in improving the soil for their garden. So, um, Keith, um, let's just talk a little bit about you. Can't all be about me. Uh, let's talk a little bit about you. Um, so, what's your your background, and how did you come to be the author of uh, a book on soil? Okay, I've been lucky in my career. Uh, almost forty years since I first graduated from university, and uh, actually went back fifteen years later and got a master's, and had the chance to. Uh, dig into stuff a little bit more uh, what, more what in you, depth. What did you study in university? Uh, I actually, I started out in geography. Oh. And uh, after a couple of years of that, decided the career path there looked like high school geography teacher, and I couldn't see myself as a high school geography teacher. <laughs> uh, transitioned uh, into agriculture and majoring in soil science. So I've actually had soil science you know, right from my undergrad days, and then went back, did a master's in soil science. And uh, it's an endlessly fascinating topic. Uh, people don't, uh, don't really understand, you know, the ground we walk on has so much going on in it. Yes. Uh, so it's, it's had lots to keep me going for 40 years and uh, still things we're learning and uh, trying to understand better. But the other side of that is I like to be able to make things accessible to people and uh, try to make them understandable. I've always had a garden of my own. Uh, dealt with gardening questions uh, at you know, various times in my uh, work career as well as you know my home life. And uh, you know, to be able to say, okay, how do we better explain what's going on so somebody can look at their own soil? And a big part of it is I get frustrated with the, uh, the gardening books. They're written with perspective of the author and where they live. Yes. And uh, so you get advice that's right for a very, very small segment that's an excellent and point. You cannot just do that. You have to uh, be able to say, okay, what have I got? What's going to be appropriate for my conditions? And that means instilling a little bit more understanding. So yes, it comes back, you know, the book comes across a bit textbookish because it's trying to get that background 
in an organized way so somebody can say, well, what's important? What do I need to know uh, so I can manage what I've got? And not just you know pick up the Better Gardening magazine and say, oh, somebody from North Carolina or from Washington State or California says, do this. Well, it might work there. It might not work at all where you are. Well, that's exactly why I say it reads like it's a textbook is that, you know, for the, for the inquisitive, for the intellectually curious person, for the person that really wants to uh, improve their and develop their understanding of this, this yeah. such an important aspect of if you want to be a successful gardener, the more you can understand about soil and the more you can improve your soil, it's so important. So that, that's why I say that sort of thing. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's like it's just such a great uh, resource for the person that's coming at it from that, from that angle. Um, so we were going to talk about uh, Keith's book and I was going to ask him like a whole bunch of questions about it, but uh, I brought up for a lot of my viewers and listeners and followers that I was going to have him on. And I had so many questions from everyone that we just decided to uh, do, make the show about addressing, we got, we got a soil expert knows more than me, right? I'm just a guy with a YouTube channel. Um, so he knows more than me and he's an expert and I got all these questions from my viewers about their soil. And they're the, actually it was a good, relatively good uh, smattering of questions because they're the kinds of questions I get a lot. Um, and, you know, I, I can only, uh, you know, I can only go so far in answering the questions compared to a guy like Keith. So it just made sense to throw these questions at them and, and wrap the show around that. And uh, I think we might do another uh, a show if, if Keith wants to, uh, where I basically uh, throw whatever questions I have uh, about his book to him. Um, I'm definitely going to have those, but uh, you know, I just got the book a month ago, and it takes me a while to digest a book and really think about it and come come up with that sort of thing. So maybe later in the season, um, you know, maybe in the fall or something like that. But because it was April or it's, this is this, this we're recording this now in late March it's going to air in April and that's the time of year so many people start thinking about this so I don't really think you should be thinking about it in April you should be thinking about it all the time and uh, there's a lot of things you can do in the fall to improve your soil as well and, and actually there's a great thing in the book um, in the, the very first chapter as I recall uh, it says like what's going on in the winter what's going on in the spring what's going on, like what's happening in the soil during those, that's, I really enjoyed reading that part because no one ever thinks of that. Like it's it, completely different soil seasons, if you want to think of that one. So I really enjoyed that. So we're going to get into questions. I, of course, it's my show. I'm going to start with my questions. I've only got two though. And they're basically the kind of questions that a lot of people ask anyway. So <laughs> why not, right? Um, but uh, then we'll get into all the viewer questions that I got uh, up to this date. So uh, the first question, and it's a very general question, and it's not a fair question, I suppose, but um, anyway, it's the kind of question I get a lot, so I might as well ask you. Uh, what's the best advice that you can give the new gardener, a person that, you know, they buy a house or, or they, they, get an they get an allotment for those people that live in an apartment but have an allotment, have a lot of viewers in the UK and other places. For people in Canada, allotment is a community garden plot. <laughs> that's just the term they use. Uh, that's my understanding of what it means. Um, so they, uh, but it's also for the person that's basically, they've, they've bought their first home. They have a piece of land. It's all grass or some combination of grass and clover and weeds and all that sort of stuff. And um, they really don't know where to start. And they're worried that, you know, what they've got there is not good. And they're, they have all sort of anxiety about the results. 
So what's the best advice you can give a new gardener who's setting out to grow food in the ground with the soil where they are? Okay, good question. And then the first thing is you have to figure out what you've got. Uh, and that's two parts. What you've got that you can see. So uh, what's the drainage like? Is water laying on the ground or is water draining away easily? Have you got water coming from uphill that's spawning in the area that's going to be a challenge for you, but you know, you need to do some dishing to get that water away. Uh, you know, have you got sunlight? You know, if you got a, a big oak tree uh, or a big walnut tree is even worse, you know, hanging over the garden, you're going to have challenges right from the get go. Uh, so that's the first part. Second part is, okay, you've looked at what you can see. If you're going to look at the fertility of the soil, those are things you cannot see. Uh, you know, if you pick up a handful of soil and say, oh, that, that's nice dirt I've got, it falls apart in my hand, it must be wonderful. It may have almost no nutrients in it because there's never been anything added. Uh, so that's where taking a soil test, sending it off to a lab, it's 20 bucks well spent, or uh, that's probably uh, 20 pounds in the UK, they may charge a little bit more. But uh, uh, $35 you know, uh, Canadian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But just a basic soil test. Yeah. Soil pH, the organic matter, uh, phosphorus, potash, maybe some of the micronutrients. Some of the micronutrient tests work in some areas, not in others. Uh, a local soil test lab would be able to say if it's worthwhile or not. Uh, but that gives you the starting point. Uh, you know, essentially, you don't want to be adding anything you don't need. Uh, what I'd like, actually an additional test I like for a garden, especially if something like an allotment where you may get a piece of ground that somebody else has been managing throw in electrical conductivity what it will tell you ec it's a measure of how salty the soil is ah. we add too much fertilizer we get a salty soil and you add more fertilizer and your plants die uh, and uh, i find with garden soils especially new garden soils uh, we we run the two extremes we, we've got the people who are trying to garden in uh, what's colloquially been called builder's loam. You know, it's the, the bricks, uh, the leftover mortar and the chunks of two by four and, and whatever subsoil that was there that was mixed up when they planted the house uh, with, you know, an inch of black soil on top, but there really isn't anything there. Yeah, uh, that's my lawn, or, that's, that's my lawn right now. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Or, or you've got somebody who's been gardening and they've been adding, uh, fertilizer and compost and manure over the years and it doesn't need anything and the, you know really it's a matter of using what's there and not adding anything more because you're going to create more challenges by putting more stuff in when you don't need it yes so Great. it's it's the two extremes you want to know which end you're on yes well, that's that's good advice um my second question is to ask you to talk a little bit about uh, mycorrhizal fungi and uh, why that's why understanding um, that I guess community or you know um, that that's the term people use, but there's a that living thing that exists in the soil. Why it's important from the gardener's point of view to getting really good results with uh, whatever you're trying to grow in the ground. Well, yeah, Michael Reisel fungi. If we look at the root of the word, uh, you know, Michael is fungi and rhiza is roots. So really they're root fungi. They're, they're 
they're fungi, and fungi have thread-like hyphae. Uh, these ones actually, uh, inf they infect the roots, but it's a symbiotic infection. So mycorrhizal fungi, uh, root fungi, is you've got the, uh, the fungi with their thread-like hyphae that infect the roots, uh, they're getting sugars from the plant. Uh, in return, they've got, they're greatly enlarging the root system. So right. they're providing nutrients to the plant. Uh, phosphorus is often the biggest one, but uh, also nitrogen, uh, some of the micronutrients. Uh, possibly water, but I think more often, you know, the, those, those threads will, will shut down in, in dry conditions quicker than the roots will. But uh, certainly they, they do benefit the plants. Uh, and those structures take time to develop. Uh, right. And that's, that's why you know, if you're growing an orchard or trees, they're hugely important because that, that really multiplies the size of the, uh, the root system. In an annual crop, uh, it will be less, uh, I won't say it's less important, but it's gonna take a little bit longer to get established. And if you've worked the ground, if you've you know, tilled up the ground, you've broken up all those hyphae that are there, they have to really get started from, from scratch. Uh, so uh, that's part of why no-till gardening or no-till farming works is those, those mycorrhizal fungi, those networks are already established. They just have to infect the, uh, the rootlets as they emerge. Yeah. So like, the plants are getting the benefit right from the start. I often wonder, like, you know, I mean, Nova Scotia gets, I, I live in Nova Scotia, for those that are new, and we, we do get rain. We don't get the kind of rain that the, the UK gets, but we do get a lot of rain. It's a rainy place, <laughs> especially where I live. I'm relatively close to the coast. It's a 10-minute drive, 10-minute drive south. Um, and there's days I can literally smell the, the sea, the ocean. Right. Um, but um, during the summer, um, from about, basically, once my plants have uh, roots, you know, once the plants are about this high, four inches high, I really don't water them all summer long. Like I, st yeah. I, I stop water, I, I have a mulch on my garden, maybe two or three inches of whatever, could be uh, hay or grass or leaves or basically whatever I can get my hands on without spending any money. Um, so I always have that soil covered with something to sort of mimic the situation that would be in a, on a forest floor or on a, on a natural field, on like a um, you know prairie, right? Um, right? No one waters a prairie, no one waters a forest nothing you know and it doesn't need to be watered um so but i can't prove for sure that it's the case that it's all the, this giant like you got the roots going down this far and then you've got this huge thing that's sort of in and out and tied into it and connected and it's gathering um you know uh, i can't prove that it's it's getting water to that to those plants um but i do know that people that garden where i am they can't go all summer without water in their garden, and I can't, <laughs> right? So, um, you know, it's anecdotal. It's completely anecdotal. It's, yeah, yeah. And, and you've got two things going on there because you've got two or three things going on there. Uh, you've got the mycorrhizae because you're not disturbing the soil. But that's going to help. You've got the mulch on the surface, which is going to stop or slow down evaporation from the surface. Exactly. So you're retaining the, the moisture that's there. You know, that, that moisture that has fallen in the, uh, in the spring more of that's going to be staying in the soil than if somebody had, had a bare soil. And when you leave the soil undisturbed, you don't dry it out. Yes. So somebody who spades their garden, you know, every time you uh, disturb the garden, you probably lose the equivalent of an inch of, of 
moisture. Right. So you need to have an inch of rain to replace that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now it's a little, you know, you are retaining moisture. You're in a, a climate that uh, is yes. generally well watered. Yes. Which helps. Uh, it's a bit of a fallacy to say, well, you know, for, the forest or the prairie don't suffer from drought. Uh, they're adapted. They just shut down if it's dry conditions oh, and start growing again when you get rain. It's a, it's a little different true. than a garden where. That's true. Yeah, the trees you, will you just want, give up. The trees will give up their leaves. Uh, yeah. If things are upon you know, needles or whatever. That that is true. That is true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's probably more accurate to say you're gaining three or four weeks that you don't have to water. And if you had a really long dry spell, you would. But oh, where yeah. you always get rain anyway. That's right. Yeah, and there are like. There are times when I think like, geez. <laughs> <laughs> it's getting close. It's how getting far, close. How far do I want to take this experiment? You know, because I do want yeah. to get amazing pumpkins and zucchini at the end of the season. Right. Okay, let's, let's, let's get around to the viewer questions here. Uh, all of these questions were from uh, viewers on Facebook. Uh, I, put, I put a notice up that I was going to be interviewing Keith and uh, lots of people asked some questions. So let's, let's get right into it here. So the first question is from Christine Gold. Uh, she asks, uh, our garden is lush and green until midsummer when certain plants, i.e. tomatoes, cucumbers, and pumpkins, turn yellow prematurely. We have rotated these crops around, but still no luck. We add some manure and compost. What can we do to the soil to prevent this? And that's, that's a question that it may or may not be soil related. Uh, and you have to do a bit of digging to figure out what's, what's actually going on and look at what's the pattern of yellowing. Uh, the most common cause of, of late season yellowing from a, a soils perspective is just that the plants run out of nitrogen. Mm. And uh, in that case, you know, and that would be where somebody isn't applying enough manure, enough compost. Uh, not usually the case for gardens. Uh, so with that going to, you know, what you would be looking for is, okay, is it the lower leaves that are yellowing and then the yellowing go from the bottom up? Uh, and generally the new growth would stay nice and green because what the plant will do with nitrogen is it will scavenge from the old tissue and pull it into into uh, the new tissue at the growing point. Yeah, my, my plants do that, right? They, they sort of give up on the lower leaves. Um, and the, yeah. I'll yeah, notice okay. if I'm looking for a, like a pumpkin, I'll find snails on the lower leaves, but none on the upper leaves. And the yeah. lower leaves have that sort of crappy, uh, but the plants do fine anyway. Right, right. So, you know, and that that would be an indication to me. You're probably about right that you don't you haven't overfed the plants. You know, if they stay lush and green all the all the way to the bottom, all the way through, it says, well, I've I've really put on more nitrogen than I need, and I'm risking disease because I've got too dense a canopy. Right. Uh, if the entire plant is going yellow, uh, I would suspect a fungal disease. Uh, I, I, would think it's more likely something like, and it may mean taking part of the garden or taking all of the garden out of production for a couple of years. Uh, plant, you know, plant some uh, cereal rye as a cover crop, work it in, you know, something that's totally different family to break those disease cycles. Uh, Almost like, got, uh, like letting it lie fallow. Let it, letting it lie fallow. Right. You know, um, and I'm not sure I'd even use clover as a, a cover in there. I would go with a cereal grain because you want something in the grass family. You know, pumpkins, tomatoes, probably potatoes would do the same thing. You know, they're all broadleafs. They all share uh, a disease profile. And uh, you need to, to break that. I see. 
you uh, you mentioned it something in your answer there. You said uh, if there's too much nitrogen, there's too dense a canopy. Can you explain? Because pe- a lot of people would think like, well, if this many uh, milligrams of <laughs> nitrogen, I, let's just keep giving it. Like the you know a little bit of cocaine is good. How about more cocaine sort of thing? So uh, too dense a can- too dense a canopy um, and too much nitrogen. Explain that a little bit because I don't think a lot of people understand that. Okay. Yeah. And and what nitrogen does in the plant it really encourages vegetative growth, growth of the leaves, growth of the stems. Uh, It won't be particularly, uh, if you like, strong growth or sturdy growth, but you'll have lots of it. Uh, So you'll have more leaves, bigger leaves, uh, leaves that are uh, thinner, uh, less less body to them. Uh, What that excess growth does, especially if you've got, you know, trying to, garden, put a lot of stuff in a small space, you will have uh, too much vegetation, restricted air movement within that canopy, uh, high humidity within that canopy, uh, and suddenly you've got ideal conditions for a fungal disease to take hold. I see. You haven't got the, the sturdy leaf to, or the sturdy stem to keep that out, and you've got the conditions where it says, I'm wet all the time, I can just go to town. I don't, I don't get shut down because it dries out. Right. So it seems like you're saying to this person that and they're saying they add manure and compost. Maybe they're going a little too, too hot to, uh, they, they may not need quite as much as they've been adding. Yeah. 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 So just, just let it, uh, calm down for a year. Uh, maybe what if they planted corn in terms of like getting something out of it, getting something out of it, corn would be a good break crop. Suck the nitrogen. Again, like, like cereal. Uh, yeah. It's a high nitrogen user. Yeah. So we'll pull nitrogen out. It's also a break crop in the, it's like cereal rye. It's in, it's in the grass family. Yes. So it would be a, a totally different uh, disease profile. Yes. Right. So that, that could be a good option. Yeah. If they wanted to like not lose that, uh, yeah, yeah. that, uh, that, that uh, contributor. Whatever that, that and yeah, and, and just plant a, plant a big corn roast for uh, the end of the summer and have all your neighbors over. Exactly. And you probably have an awesome one if that's, if that's the case. All right. Uh, the next question is from uh, Chris Arsenal, and uh, he says, um, "Is there a standard mix we can use to amend this sandy red? I think he lives in PEI. He says this sandy red PEI soil. Um, is there a standard mix we can use to amend the sandy red PEI soil that provides the best all-around conditions for a wide variety of garden plants? I guess he's he's talking about getting." Uh, buying soil from a, uh, a landscaping, um, uh, you know, a provider or, or a garden center or something like that. Okay, so you're going to build up a, a sandy red PEI soil. The the standard mix is usually to to add organic matter, build up the organic matter. Uh, you can buy it. You can bring in compost. Uh, you can bring in peat moss. There, there's some people don't like peat moss because it is a non or a very slowly renewable source. So, uh, what about the notion yeah. that peat moss is uh, acidic? How acidic is peat moss? I mean, I just read that, but uh, I don't I don't use it because I I have to pay for it. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm very cheap. Um, but uh, yeah, how is how how acidic is peat moss? Uh, it where it grows is in an acidic environment. You know, so if you if you took straight peat moss, it probably has a, a pH of four, four and a half to five and a half. 
something right. like that. So uh, great for growing blueberries, not or cranberries, not so much for uh, a lot of the garden crops we want. Right. Uh, depending what soil you're mixing it into, that that may or may not be an issue. Yeah, yeah. If you're yeah. using it in a potting mix, and, and you're right, you have to pay for it. So a yeah. lot of people are looking for uh, cheap or free. Uh, so yeah, compost, uh, you know, mulching with hay or, or straw uh, are, is a good option. Uh, growing organic matter in place is a, a good option too, but it takes time. So what do you, what do you mean when you say that? Uh, cover crops. Cover crops. Or, you know, uh, where you, you grow something, you work it into the soil. Uh, it's got a, two benefits. You've got the roots there that actually help build soil structure directly by holding right. the soil together. Yeah. And, and it adds organic matter. Right. Uh, you know, but you, you probably have to do that to, you know, for two or three years before you're going to see a real noticeable effect. Right. The caution I would put on, you know, and, and organic matter is, it's, it's the, the standard answer for a multitude of, of soil problems. If you've got too much sand or you've got too much clay, uh, organic matter is going to help. If you go overboard, all you're going to do is uh, have a soil that's going to subside over time because there, there's a, if you like, a, a, a level of organic matter that will be stable in the soil. Right. You know, uh, you know might be four to six percent, you know, a little bit lower on the sandy soils, a little higher in the clay soils. If you go above that, it's just going to break down. It's going to break down faster until you get down to that level. And, uh, you know, so if you add a huge wad of organic matter, uh, yes, it, it can look marvelous for a year or two, but then it's just going to subside over time. Right. And, uh, yeah, keeping good rotation, getting some, some nurse crops or cover crops in there is going to help with any soil. Uh, a standard mix, you know, if it comes to nutrients, again, I'll come back, you want the soil test. You want to know, do I need something or not? Yeah. If you're in PEI and it's potato ground, you probably won't need to add any phosphorus for the next hundred years. <laughs> um, this is a perfect segue to ask about, so in your book, um, as I recall, there is a section where you talk about like what you know, what soil is like this percent is this, this percent is that, you know, can, can you talk about, cause it's perfect. Cause this guy's question, right? Because he's basically, you know, saying what should, what should my soil look like? And we literally paint a picture of what, uh, you know, what soil tends to look like. Can you talk about that a little bit? Okay. Uh, so you're talking about soil structure, what or soil texture, sorry, the, the components of the yeah, soil, the mineral components sand, of the this soil. This much is air, this much is, uh, yeah, sort of yeah. Thing. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and soil texture is made up of you know, sand, which is gritty, silt, which is, it feels flowery, and clay, which is the sticky stuff. Uh, the clay particles are very, very small, very, you know, you can't really see a clay particle with the naked eye. Silt particles are the ones that, they fill up your, uh, your fingerprints. Right. Uh, if you're up the soil between your, your fingers and then the sand is quite gritty. Uh, Lots of sand, you get a soil that drains very well, uh, but it doesn't hold together very well. It doesn't hold nutrients very well. It doesn't hold water very well. So, you know, yes, you can go out the day after a, a big rain and you can uh, walk on the, the garden and not uh, have it stick to your shoes, but at the same time, it's not gonna be the, the, uh, the soil that will hold the, 
hold the water through a, a three-week drought in the middle of July. Yeah. Uh, clay soils is the opposite. It holds on to water too well, uh, so it takes a long time to dry out. Uh, it is easy to compact. You know, if you're out there when it's wet, a clay soil will teach you patience because if you go out there and you, you play around with the clay soil too early in the spring before it's dry enough, and you will make little bricks that will stay there until the next winter when the frost breaks them down. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, that, you know, ideal soil, you know, a nice loam that's a mix of sand, silt, clay. Uh, you should have about half of the soil as, as solid particles and half the soil as pore space that's, you know, filled with either air or water. Right, right. You know, it's it's you know. air space that's, that's uh, able to accept water when it's available, uh, so it makes the soil sponge-like uh, yeah, yeah. in that sense, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's, uh, I, I remember when I first got into, like, really, you know, I first bought my home, and I was trying to learn about gardening, and uh, I noticed the soil was very, where I was living in a part of the province here called the Valley, which is close, the closest thing to where you live that's here. Right. And my wife's from Ontario, so she loved it there, because it was, it's like, ten, on, on a summer's day, it can be anywhere from 15 to 10 degrees warmer there, and it's, it's about an hour's drive. <laughs> it's right. crazy, right? Um, anyway, I, I had a lot of clay in my soil, and but I remember reading somewhere that that clay, because people always say, "Oh, my soil's all clay," but I remember reading it. So it's got all these nutrients in it. It's actually got a lot of uh, good stuff, and it's so densely packed with nutrients. It, it's you know, it's it's difficult because the roots might not be able to get into it, but the clay in and of itself is is a great resource for the gardening for the gardener as long as you can sort of you know, change the composition to an extent where it's the roots can get in and get down to all that good stuff that's in the clay and it also its ability to hold on to water. Yeah, yeah. The challenge with clay is more often soil structure and being being able to get that pore space in the soil and uh, and not mess it up. <laughs> not mess it up. Because <laughs> often, it, yeah, it's, it's easier to mess up a clay than it is a, uh, a sandy soil. Right. But if you treat it right, it will... Uh, you know, return you back tenfold. Oh, certainly. My whole garden back here is clay. It's just clay and rocks. And then I just, you know, built like a six inch high sort of boxes. And because there's a horse uh, stable down the road, I just filled it with horse manure, which is the, the weakest manure there is or one of them. And uh, just sort of went from there and bumbled through. And, and now I've got great soil. Uh, so it's <laughs> sort of, and I know that going so much on the, you know, using that much, there's a lot of risks that go with it. And perhaps I paid a price because I used to have incredible pest problems. Um, maybe that was too high on nitrogen. But uh, anyway, it's working out great now and it didn't cost anything. Um, let's get on to uh, Les McLeod's question. So we're on question number three. Uh, so, uh, so the question is, uh, for the benefit of those who may be starting a new garden for the first time from scratch this year, what would your, oh my God, I asked this single, I asked this question already. What would your single most important recommendation, uh, what would be the single most important recommendation you could make? I already asked this question, but. Uh, yeah. Take a soil test. Take a soil test. <laughs> Take a soil test. Yeah. And uh, I, I would say if, if things don't go well, don't give up. <laughs> right. Uh, but uh, yeah, take a soil test, right? I guess that now would be a good time to do it, right? This, this would be a great time. It's yeah. uh, it's time you can get results back before, uh, you know, we need to do something. Yeah. And uh, it can guide, you know, if you need to apply lime, if you need to uh, 
build up fertility or if you need to just back off and uh, leave well enough alone. So where, where you live, if somebody, I can honestly say I've never done a swell test, um, <laughs> but I mean, I'm always willing to fail, right? Like it's like, I'll just see what happens. Right. And you know, if it looks bad, if it's, if it's bad, then something needs to change. And if it's good, mm -hmm. then it's good. Right. Um, but I mean, that, that can waste a lot of time. It is more effective to take a swell test. So, so for people that want to do that, I mean, my first inclination would just be go on um, like Facebook and go on a garden group and say, hey, uh, where do I go to get a soil test? But like, I guess since you're in Ontario, uh, would you just go to the Department of Agriculture or a university or how do you get a soil test done? Uh, there's actually a number of labs uh, in, in the Maritimes. I would use Prince Edward Island uh, University Lab. Okay. Uh, I've, you I've dealt with them. They've... Uh, one of the things you want to look for is a lab that's accredited right. and, and one that's, that's local. You want them to be using the tests that are appropriate for the soils you've got. I see. And uh, so to send, the lab, you know, send a soil test to another lab in the U.S. or to, in another part of Canada, right. they may, they'll give you numbers. They may give you lots of numbers, <laughs> but they may not mean anything if they're not using the right test for your soil because it does vary region to region. Right, so it's it's usually they're usually done out of uh, like university uh, agricultural universities or agricultural extensions of universities. Uh, some areas is the universities. There's a, a lot of private labs, but you look for a, a lab that has a government accreditation of some sort. Okay, you know, right. so you've got a sense that yes, they are they are actually performing the test properly and getting good results. Right, farmers use them, and if yes, and yeah. they have to be good, or the whole economy will collapse. <laughs> um, that sort of thing, yeah. All right, um, our next question is from Mike Boone. Um, he says, uh, I have in the past, uh, in the fall, dug trenches in the center of my garden bed to empty my compost bin. I do this too, done videos on it. So uh, yeah, I have in the past, in the fall, dug trenches in the center of my garden to uh, empty my compost bin. Is this, uh, will this idea work well or would I get better results letting the composting waste fully uh, you know, break down and then spread it on top later. So they call this like trench composting. Um, I, when I was a kid, you know, I can speak to this a bit. We had a fishing boat and like we always have um, all these, uh, sometimes we would clean the fish on the boat when we were coming into the harbor and just throw all the you know, guts and stuff off the end of the boat and the seagulls would come and get it. But sometimes uh, for whatever reason, we clean all the fish in the backyard and my, my dad would just dig a big hole in the garden and throw all the heads and guts in the ground sort of thing. And so uh, I've done that too myself. Sometimes if I've got a, a full, uh, full compost bin, I've got a garden that I haven't yet put in, I'll just dig a big deep trench in the garden and dump everything in there. And then, so there'll be, a bit like, there'll be about between all that compost and the actual top of the soil, maybe, you know, eight inches, nine inches of soil. Um, so there's this hot sort of hot mess underneath the soil, like a dead body sort of thing. Uh, anyway, what do you think about that approach? I've gotten away with it. I have to think about that one for a little bit because it's composting. You really want it to be aerobic. You want aerobic. the air to be getting at it uh, yeah. so that you've got lots of biological activity going on. Uh, part of what you're doing with composting is generating lots of heat. Right. So that uh, if you've got something with weed seeds in it or pathogens, you know, it gets hot enough that it kills those. 
That's right. I uh, guess what, so, I'm, what this approach is totally anaerobic or mostly anaerobic, depending on uh, how mostly, mostly anaerobic. Yeah. Uh, you will have a good source of nutrients doing that, you know, especially if you're putting down fish guts and fish heads. Uh, and it's probably not a bad way of retaining the nutrients. The downside is you're, you're, you're putting a lot in one area where as it rots down, you're going to have that, that ground over top of it subside. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if you're trying to maintain a, a no-till garden, you're going to have a no-till garden that doesn't have an even surface anymore. You'll have oh, no, it'll a, hollow, a, a hollow over top of where you're putting your plants. And if, yes. if you get a wet season, that can be problematic. Okay. So I, I, yeah, I wouldn't be doing that with a, a compost that's made from yard waste or garden waste that has any, any weeds in it at all, but it could have weed seeds. Right. Uh, for something that's, you know, a hot compost, something like uh, manure or fish guts and fish heads, putting it that far down, I don't think hurts it. Uh, it will keep that, those nutrients in place. Uh, but it's, uh, yeah, I think it's something you do with caution. Right. Yeah, I've, I've yeah. done it with Monor too. I've, 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 I've done videos where I've said, this is a way to use uh, like uh, relatively green manure. So people say never use green manure because um, you know, it's got uh, potentially pathogens, it's got uh, vows and weeds in it, that sort of thing. Um, but lots of weeds and could be high in ammonia. Crazy, yeah, but um, so my theory <laughs> is, and I, and I got away with it, right? That's why, but anyway, mm -hmm. if you put it about eight inches below the top of the soil, um, the, the, none of those weed seeds can actually get through that. Like they, it might just, a lot of them, it'll be too cold for them to germinate because whatever that seed is. Okay. Uh, some of the ones they'll germinate, but because they can't get to the light and like they, they, they only have so much they can travel before there's light. There's eight inches, right? Or even more, right? So they, they can't get to the light. So they just die before they achieve that. They just, they germinate from the heat there, but they die. Um, and so you basically just got this rotting mass underneath the ground. And uh, at some point, you're, uh, you're, whatever you're growing there. So when I do something like this, I don't plant a root crop. I plant like a, oh, something like a, for that year, a squash or cucumber or tomato, basically a top, what I call a top plant, not a plant yeah, that goes yeah. down in. Because uh, God knows what's going on down there. You don't want your food being part of whatever the hell that is. Yeah, you don't want, don't want to have carrots or potatoes. You know, yeah, exactly. Because you don't know there, what's but... going on down there sort of thing. Let that all just work itself out. Uh, and let, So I've, I've done this and it kind of works, but I, I have no science behind it at all. I, I, I adopted the, uh, it's like an adaptation of the concept of the hugoculture bed. We, you bury a bunch of, um, this is a, an approach used in Eastern Europe where you bury uh, old rotten logs and leaves and stuff like that. And you, you basically dig a trench out and then you throw a whole bunch of rotten logs and leaves and stuff. And then you put the soil back on top and all that stuff slowly rots over time and slowly uh, feeds the soil as the different organisms sort of work their way through it. And it also uh, sucks up a lot of moisture and sort of thing. So it's just a kind of way of, 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 of just playing with that sort of thing. But I think there's, you can't just grow anything in a bed if you're doing that sort of thing. I think you're really asking for it if you plant potato or something in there. The other thing is a, it probably works in a small garden. But oh, if yeah, yeah. At, yeah. <laughs> uh, if, if you looked at 
know, the concentration of nutrients you've got. You're really not making very efficient use of the nutrients you're putting down. You're probably not getting the recovery you would if, if you had uh, left, you know, a fully composted uh, or a more moderate amount of manure, you know, closer to the surface. Uh, yeah, if you yeah, if you'd spread like just half an inch over the whole thing, I think you'd get yeah, yeah. Um, yeah better. That's a really good point. You'd get a really good bang for your buck. I agree. That that is a really good point. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So uh, next question is from um, Helen Louise Duperon, and uh, she asks, uh, "Are there certain weeds that can indicate what's wrong with your soil? Are soil acidity tests really important?" She said, okay. "I guess she's contrasting. She, do I need a test, or can the weeds just tell me what's going on?" Uh, and I will say, yes, the soil acidity test is important because that tells you what's really going on. Uh, <laughs> Without I'll, I'll, I'll share my experience with, with indicator weeds or indicator plants. Okay. Is uh, a lot of those plants, they're opportunists. And what, what they're indicating is something is going, going on that the plant you want to grow isn't growing. There's space there. There's an opportunity for me to grow. Right. So there's, yeah, there's, so, there's some so reason what you want to grow isn't growing. Isn't growing. And, but I'll, I'll fill in the space. You know, when we say nature abhors a vacuum, that's, that's what it's talking about is, oh, there, there's a space, there's an opportunity for something else to grow. Yeah. Uh, it's like you've got moss in your lawn. Well, it's, it's not because. That's a classic example. Yeah. You know, it's not because the soil's acidic. Uh, it's because for some reason your lawn isn't growing well and there's open space and the moss can fill in and colonize because it doesn't grow nearly as fast as a, a good thick sod. Right. But if the sod is weak, it'll come in. Uh, the other indicator I see is, you know, often talked about a sheep sorrel. Uh, common weed uh, will spread like mad if it, if it has the chance to. I have it. And, okay. And, and it is very tolerant of acidic soils. Right. So it's, it's true, you know, if you've got a, if you're growing, Plants that don't like acidic soil and they don't grow, yes, the sheep sorrel will come in, you know, it will show up in pastures, uh, you know, but the legume can't grow because it's too acidic. And in, in, that, in that fact, okay, yes, it's indicating, it's taking advantage of an opening that's caused by acidic soil. Right. It would also take a, advantage of an opening that's caused by soil that's too wet. Right. Uh, you know, I had a great patch of sheep sorrel uh, in a very alkaline flower bed that came in with some uh, uh, some topsoil that I got, and uh, it spread like mad. It was because there was there was space between the perennial plants that hadn't filled in yet. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, so indicator plants tell you something going on. They don't always tell you what's going on. What's what's the example of? Um, oh, this is the sort of other side of it, but they'll say like uh, you know. Uh, Pine needles will acidify your soil, and it's, it's no the pine trees don't mind acidic soil, so they they tend to be on acidic they, soil. They tend to be together. Yeah, they tend to be together because they don't mind it, whereas a lot of other things do. So, you know, you'll get a, a pine stand in a really acidic patch of soil because the other trees just can't deal with that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's it's a. Uh, it's, it's, it's never that straightforward, whereas um, with a, an acidity test, it is straightforward. If, it's, uh, if the test yeah. says it's acidic, it's, it's, you know it's four. That's, 
yeah, 3.5, yeah. you know, exactly. That's why we do the science, right? <laughs> and, yeah, and that will tell you if, if liming is going to solve your issue or if you have to look at something else. Yes. All right, this next question actually speaks to something we touched on earlier. Uh, this is from Joy, uh, Jody Rendell asks, uh, does adding store-bought mycorrhizal fungi benefit plants? We actually talked about this uh, before, the, before the interview. Yeah, well, I can, I can answer a little bit more directly and say, if you, unless you've got some reason that the mycorrhizae in the soil have been totally destroyed, adding a store-bought concoction is not going to make any difference at all. What, uh, what, what might so, bring, why, why would that be the case? Why would the whole uh, fungi sort of system be destroyed? Uh, yeah, the thing, places where we've seen fungi or mycorrhizae destroyed would be uh, inundation, like after the, the floods in the Mississippi in the, uh, the 90s, you know, there were soils that it took a while before they came back to full productivity because they'd lain underwater for two months. And that was enough to kill the mycorrhizae. That's a pretty extreme situation. Right. Uh, yeah. If you've got if you've got subsoil, you know, some of that builder's loam that has absolutely nothing. But then the trouble is, if you've got that builder's loam, just adding mycorrhizae is not going to make any difference because you haven't got a good environment for them to grow. Right. Right. And uh, yeah. So. I like to quote Kevin Costner. Uh, <laughs> if you build it, they will come. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You create the yeah. conditions that the uh, the soil organism, the beneficials, create a situation where the beneficial uh, soil organisms, they'll just want to be there and they'll proliferate. And they'll pro yeah. And generally, there is enough inoculum there that you don't need to add more. Right. So you're you're saying it's it's only in very extreme cases that someone would want to go on Amazon and buy some magic uh, fungi inoculants to, I see a lot of guys on YouTube sprinkling this around this pixie dust. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and, and if you're buying it on Amazon and it, it sat in a warehouse over the weekend at, uh, you know, 35 degrees Celsius, you're, you are putting magic dust on because whatever was alive is no longer alive. The only thing that's alive is the magic. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> magic in your head. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, yeah. Uh, you know, unless unless the uh, the soil where you're trying to get your garden started has uh, has gone through some sort of ecological disaster, um, yeah, probably not going to do any good. Very unlikely that you need to buy that stuff. Um, just 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 keep it covered, keep a mulch on it. You know, get the organic material in there. It should uh, take care of itself. Um, Matthew Smith asks. Uh, Matthew Smith asks, are, are coffee grounds better served as a component of compost? Or directly added to the garden. I guess he's saying you just sort of sp sprinkle it on like pixie dust. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I have often thought I've, I've often wondered that myself. Some of what you're trying to do with composting is break down the physical structure of, of the stuff, and you know that's not an issue with coffee grounds. Right. Uh, you know, it's already it's finely ground. Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be going to the local Tim Hortons and trying to get uh, you know a year's supply of coffee grounds from Tim's. To, to put in my 10 by 10 garden bed. Right. Uh, if it's just that you uh, take the coffee out of your uh, coffee maker each morning and then dump that in the garden, it's uh, it's certainly, I don't think, going to cause any problems. And right. it save, saves a step. Uh, you're not going to have any weeds, seeds to deal with. Uh, yeah, I think it, it goes to 
you know, composting or do you let stuff rot in place? If you let stuff rot in place, you've got the chance that the biology is going to incorporate the, the mineral matter in the soil with the organic matter and actually build soil structure. Right. With compost, you're doing all that in a separate pile and what you're adding is fairly stable, so it may stick around, but you've, you've missed that opportunity to really build soil structure with it. Right. So it's composting as a place, but I, I think it's, uh, it's sometimes over, overstated what composting will do, or people don't really understand why we're doing it. Actually, this, your answer to this actually made me think of something that uh, I've noticed over the last, I, I never read this anywhere, it's just something, so, I grow a lot of kale every year, right? And uh, at some point, uh, I gather all my mulch materials in the fall because people kindly put them in bags and take them to the end of the street <laughs> for me, right? They're nice, very nice of them. Um, so I, I throw everything out on the garden. I just sort of redistribute it over the course of the season. But usually around uh, July-ish, um, I find some in some of my beds the compost, uh, the, the sorry, the uh, the mulch getting a bit thin because I don't want to water my garden. I want to replenish it. So I'll use what I've got, which I mow my lawn and I'll take the grass clippings and throw them. Oh, maybe only just an inch or so. Um, Cause grass clippings are so dense. You don't need mm -hmm. to go really yeah. high with them and they do a really good job. Um, so I'll throw grass clippings over the beds, um, some beds anyway. And I found that when I put the grass clippings over the kale beds, after about a week, the kale, it just takes off like, like could could the nitrogen from that grass be getting to the kale that quickly? Is that possible? Yes. Okay. Right. Yes. Yes. Because it is those... like a shot. Is it's like a <laughs> B twelve shot. Like the, they just go. Yeah, because those grass clippings, they have a fair bit of organic nitrogen, but there's also there's nitrate nitrogen in in the clippings themselves. And that's well, that smell, up. that horrible like pea smell when you yeah yeah you, you sort of have a pile of it and you lift it up. It is a really intense smell. So that is ammonia, ammonia nitrate. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, okay. Well, yeah. it's, there we go. Okay, well, there you go, people. I'm going to have to make a real, I, I've mentioned this in a couple of videos, but it's just like, hey, I think this is something, but I'm going to have to do a dedicated video to that this year, right? I put it on, show the state of the kale, and then do a video a few weeks later, look at this kale, right? Um, I think, what a cheap... <laughs> A cheap fertilizer, <laughs> um, especially if you, well, it's not really cheap because you paid gasoline for it in a sense with your lawnmower. Um, all right, so next question uh, is from um, Howard Vespers. And he asks, uh, he says, I was planning on digging up a few buckets of soil from around the base of a few very large old trees back in the forest of my family's farm this year and using it as an inoculant. I'm guessing this is a uh, mycorrhizal fungi uh, type uh, theme question again. Um, by sprinkling it around for three new garden beds uh, comprised mainly of wood chips and old hay that I will be planting, uh, you know, making it a potato garden in the 2021 season. Uh, they will be allowed to lay fallow and rot all this year. Is this a good way of increasing the good bacterial or fungal growth in my soil? So I guess he's got some soil and uh, he's, he's, un, he's uh, not completely confident in that soil he has because it's basically like wood chips and hay and a lot of organic material. And he's, he wants to throw some soil from the base of a, an old tree on top of that, sort of maybe pick it up or give it a, a sort of a micro, uh, microorganism shot sort of thing and let it sit like that all summer long and then plant it next year. What do you think about that? Okay, so he, what he's doing is really 
you're trying to do a homemade inoculant, right. uh, it's got a better chance of actually having some, some live mycorrhizae to be able to get to the garden than uh, what you buy at the store. Is it going to make any difference? He's adding a bit more organic matter with, with that stuff. Because uh, actually, if he's going to get mycorrhiza, uh, it wouldn't be near the trunk. It would be out where the roots are active. Right. Around the drip line. Right. Uh, so near the trunk, he's probably getting, you know, it's more of the organic matter that he's, he's bringing back to the garden. Right. Uh, I don't think I would do it. But it's it's something that uh, it's not going to hurt anything to do that, right? As long as he doesn't bring back a bunch of quackgrass rhizomes when he does it, right? Well, and I'm guessing like if he's got gardens that are made beds, I guess you just fill them up with wood chips and old hay. There's probably a reasonably good deal of different kinds of fungi in there already. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, if anything, maybe that might need some some nitrogen to 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 sort of heat that up a bit. Uh, I'd say if you're out in the garden and you got to use the bathroom, uh, that'd be the place to do it uh, for this summer. And uh, you know, <laughs> the magic will probably take care of itself. <laughs> but uh, yeah, anyway. Um, and actually, Howard has the last question as well. Uh, Howard Vespers uh, says, uh, of all the free compost, oh, this is a question after my own heart, of all the free composting ingredients, leaves, wood chips, cardboard, hay, etc. Does any one of them deliver more routine for the amount used? By routine, I mean volume of compost created per volume of raw material composted. That's a good question. So, yeah, yeah. So he wants to have a compost that actually takes more back to the garden uh, from what he's put in. Per pound, uh, exactly. Yeah, pounds. And there's, with composting, you have to have the balance between carbon and nitrogen. Uh, you need the nitrogen there to, to really, if you like, heat things up, get the bacteria going because uh, they need nitrogen for their bodies. Uh, they also need the uh, the labile carbon, the carbon that they can get at and, and uh, use. So if you want to retain much carbon in your uh, in your compost, you would use something like wood chips. Uh, because that's going to be slower to break down, you've got less surface area. You've got right. less carbon there that the, the bugs can get at. Uh, and you'll end up with a, you know, something that looks like, uh, yeah, it's, you'll still, still see the wood chips there. Right. They'll be starting to break down, but they won't be breaking down as quickly, but that will give you more return. The other thing with wood chips is it helps to keep that, that uh, compost pile open and aerobic. Right. Yeah, because uh, they, they have the structure. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It takes yeah, them a while. A lot of a lot of compost piles, and you get stuff that's ground up too fine, and it just all just collapses down on itself, and it goes anaerobic in the bottom, and uh, you know doesn't really compost. Yeah, I found if you put like a, a foot of hay, uh, sometimes when I if I can get hay, I like to put it over my potatoes inst instead of doing the hilling up and stuff like that. I'll just put about a foot of hay, mm -hmm. and the potatoes find their way up through it, but over the course of the season, the hay um, just pretty much disappears by October. Yeah. And all of that hay leaves like, I don't know, like uh, less than a centimeter. Of, I mean, it, it does create black soil. It breaks, the, all that hay breaks down really fast. So I, I think hay has a lot to add to soil, but it, 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 for, for the amount of hay you put on, there's not a lot of soil. You, you don't get a lot left. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you're, if you're putting 
hay on, uh, especially if it's a legume hay, you know, it's it's got a carbon donation ratio to start out with that's between ten to one and twenty to one. Right. You know, that's going to break down pretty quickly. Yes. Uh, if you put straw on, that's got a C to N ratio of eighty to one. You'll have a lot more left at the end of the season, but you won't won't get the benefit of the nitrogen coming out of it to feed the potatoes. Right. Yeah. 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 It's always these sorts of you know I've used uh, I've tried seaweed too, and that uh, I mean seaweed is the the weight of it. It's almost all water. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like this thick, dense stuff, but it's actually just like you're picking up a big bucket of water with just enough stuff to hold the water together. It gets really hot and it breaks down and it makes the soil very dark. And I think it's got a lot of good stuff in it, but a bucket of hay might make like, or sorry, like a, the, the most seaweed I could carry, that might make a couple of cups of soil when it's all done breaking down. Yeah. yeah. Um, or, you know, but you're the weight of it, you know, hundred pounds <laughs> of seaweed, right? It turns into, yeah, so that's, that's good. I had one more question question of my own that just I just thought of while um, well uh, this video this uh, interview is conversation kind of a lot longer than I planned but it's just it's just great to have a guy like you in on here um, and that's to talk about uh, worms a little bit so you know oftentimes when I'm out in my garden and I'm explaining what I'm doing and I'm, I'm discussing what's going on underneath the soil I use very vague terms and I use very I use a lot of short shorthands and I often use the term worms when I really mean the organisms that live under the soil, all of them, right? Because um, that's the one people can see, and that's the yeah. one people. It's also the one people see as good, right? Um, so it's right. a shorthand for good organisms that people can see. But can you explain to people what exactly? So you see the worm, and the dirt goes in one end. The dirt comes out the other end, and the dirt's better when it comes out the other end. And what is the worm doing? while it's doing all of that? What's, what's going in and what's coming out? What's, what's the worm getting out of this, this dirt that's going in and out the other end? <laughs> yeah, and, and what, the, what the worm is doing is they are, they're, they're ingesting soil, but they're ingesting the organic matter. They're, they're breaking down uh, you know, the bigger chunks of organic matter and uh, grinding that down into to finer stuff and mixing it with the soil. Right. So, uh, you know, when, a, when an earthworm burrows through the soil or, or eats its way through the soil, uh, it's going to be digesting uh, some of the plant residue, some of the, the old roots, uh, the bacteria and the protozoa and the fungi that are in the soil, they'll ingest some of that. Uh, they'll extract something for themselves. But it's mixing the leftover organic part of that with the soil particles. And what you get out at the end actually has a wonderful structure uh, yes. and it's it's leaving the soil more aerated uh it's leaving the soil uh with more available nutrients because it's, it's broken down some of the tough stuff and then left it in a form that uh, you know the nutrients can break down to forms that are you know the plants can take up uh should talk a little bit about earthworms too because there's there's really two main populations uh there's the uh, the smaller worms that, that uh, primarily burrow horizontally. They'll go sideways through the soil, they'll come up to the surface a bit, go back down, but they're, they're the ones that are uh, doing most of the turning over. Uh, and if you work stuff into the soil, you know, they'll, they'll go at that and they'll, they'll eat that and, and uh, incorporate the leftovers into the soil. They're the, the ones, other ones, they're the ones engaging with your mulch layer, if you have a mulch layer. Uh, 
Yeah, yeah, and they'll be sort of at, at the bottom of the mulch layer where the mulch meets the soil. Yes. Starting to pull some of that down in. Uh, the other ones are the uh, the vertical burrowing worms, the dew worms that we call them. Night uh, crawlers. The <laughs> night crawlers, yeah. which which they they will have a vertical burrow that will be down three four feet into the soil. Really? Oh yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. And if it gets hot and dry in the summer, they'll go down to the bottom of their burrow and they'll just chill. And if it gets cold in the winter, they'll go down to the bottom of their burrow and they'll just chill. Uh, and they actually. Most of the time, they will just anchor their butt in the top of their burrow and come out, and they will scavenge stuff from the surface of the soil. Right. So yeah, they're they're out, they're reaching, uh, uh, and then they'll pull that back into their burrow. Right. You know, so they'll 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 pull uh, leaves. You know, it's it's funny when you see a a corn plant with a leaf that's the end of it's been pulled down into the burrow and the rest of it's still attached to the plant. They do that? Oh, they will do that, yes. Oh, wow. So I always thought they just came up to the surface to, you know, uh, you know, get... Uh, get make, friendly? Make some time with the ladies, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so when you're a kid gathering, I'm like, what are they doing to each other, right? Uh, so <laughs> you're gathering for fishing and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, yeah, but they're actually, that's how, how they gather their food supply, too. Really? So they do. Yeah, so they, they those ones they will they will pull from the surface. Really? Yeah. So in your no-till garden, you'll you'll encourage those because you've left more food on the surface for them. Right. And I guess that pathway doesn't get messed up. I mean it's right. it's, it's there. And I guess that pathway always also allows the water to get into your soil. Yes. Yeah. Um, the porosity is sort of naturally there. Yes. Um, also, I mean you said the worms are feeding on the organic matter as as stuff's pat how much of, of what's what they're getting is organic matter and how much of what they're getting is the things that are feeding on the organic matter like the protozoa and all these different oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, is are, they, are they after the organic matter or are they after those things or they're just taking whatever isn't uh, mineral they'll take they'll take whatever right okay um yeah you know as far as what part of what they're eating is is uh Living as opposed to dead. Yes. You know, uh, it's probably five or ten percent living and ninety or ninety-five percent. <laughs> right. Recently so dead. They're almost like you know when you think of a whale going through the ocean, just sort of <gasps> breathing everything yeah. in. So they're the closest thing to a whale that we have in the in the soil. That's um, right. All right. Well, man, Keith, this was a great conversation. I really enjoyed uh, having you on the show. I, I hope uh, when I'm when I'm done, really. Uh, pouring through the book we can have you on again and uh, I'll have some uh, some some of my own sort of uh, more more well thought out questions arising directly from the book and of course my own uh, you know just my own uh, my own quandaries um, uh, in terms of the book um, improving your soil a practical guide to soil management for the serious home gardener um, what's the best way for people to uh, to buy this uh, it's on Amazon it's on uh chapters, uh, not chapters anymore, it's indigo now. Uh, I have seen it uh, actually in some of the TSC stores. So it's, it's out and about. Right, uh, is it, what is it, the, the publisher's Firefly perhaps? Firefly Books is the publisher, yep. Yeah, perhaps uh, you can get it from them. Yes, yeah, get it directly from the publisher. Okay. Uh, so yeah, it's it's broadly available. Uh, I hope uh, you know, the people who ask questions would uh, pick up a copy and uh, get into a little bit more about 
how to answer your own questions. That's right. That's uh, the fun part. Is uh, it's a puzzle you have to figure out which which pieces are important for your conditions. Oh, I think gardening is just one of those things where I, I hope I, I I die with unanswered questions, <laughs> and uh, ideally I answer one of them the day before that. Like, oh, that's what uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> sort of thing. Um, we'll we'll put some uh, links to your. Uh, uh, book, uh, how you can get it in the, in the show notes for this. Um, do you have any sort of uh, social media type uh, means that people can access you? Are you, are you that sort of an author or you're sort of the author that just leave me alone? <laughs> <laughs> While I've still been working, my social media presence has been muted, put it that way. Right, right, but, right. Uh, yeah, once I retire, I'll, I'll put more emphasis on it. Wrap that up. Okay, right yeah. on. Okay, uh, uh, Keith, it's great having you on the show. Um, everybody watching, uh, if you enjoy the podcast, you want to help support the podcast, uh, check out my sponsor, Vessi Seeds. If they have something that you need for your garden, buy it from them, and that'll help support me in putting this podcast out. Check out the show notes. There's a coupon code, GAVS20. You can use There's There's details there on, on what, what you can and can't order, but um, you basically get free shipping. Uh, if you order, if you order anything with a pack of seeds, unless it's really big and has a, a shipping surcharge, that sort of thing. Whoop! I got Keith's phone going off. I'll call them back. Totally, that's pretty groovy stuff. Um, <laughs> anyway, if if they have something that you need for your garden, buy it from them. That's the best way to support the show. Show them I'm a good partner, and of course, you get something out of it because you get something they want. And my garden. Almost, except for a handful of seeds that I save myself, or I get something from a friend who's playing around. But the majority of the seeds that I get from my garden is provided by them. All the results you see, I get it. I'm getting it's it's uh, the result of their seeds. So, uh, yeah. Everyone, thanks for watching. Thanks for uh, following us with another episode here. Um, and until next time, get out there, get at it, have fun in your garden. Keith, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been fun. Okay. Look forward to chatting again. Okay, great.